a Highline podcast. This is Ravel, a roundtable show about the complexity of faith in the age of information. My name's Josh. I'm Stephen. And I'm Emily. We each grew up in different parts of American Christianity, and we still keep thinking about how to take it seriously, even as we leave some beliefs behind. We think theology should be an exploratory dialogue, so our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities. We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Emily, Josh, how are you two this week? I am just peachy. I'm doing pretty good, not gonna lie. Love it. I'm having a good week, yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm ready to dive in. So first, let's address what we're drinking this evening. I am drinking a Miha Sangria. It is white wine with tropical fruit, like pineapple, coconut, mango, Mm, on point. So good. Steven, what are you drinking? I am enjoying an Oktoberfest lager from Red Lodge Ales here in Montana. Oh, delicious. It is October, isn't it? Because it's October. And, yeah, it's like autumn and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So mm. just, I'm getting in the mood. I'm drinking a pink slip from Uber Brew Company in Billings, Montana. I actually don't know. I was like saying that, and I don't know if they're considered a brewing company. I think their full name is Uber Brew, but they're delicious. They are they're delicious. They're like German food Ooh. and German e-beer. Like this is like a really crisp, light lager mixed in with some raspberries in the brewing Mm. it is so delicious that's nice i'm so glad i brought some back from montana so refreshing shout out Ooh, i love this Uh, yeah you guys you guys are still on the summery drinks and i'm i'm here in fall now apparently yeah you are yeah but i don't know how to explain this but like this tastes fall like to me like it's such a delicious lager that it doesn't feel like a it doesn't feel like a Bud Light or something. Like it's very flavorful and like very grainy. Mm. Mm. All right. So it feels mm-hmm. like fall with raspberries. It's Ooh. very interesting. I'm That's... consuming a summer beverage because I didn't get to drink in the summer. So hey. this is very go. fair. Yeah. No, you have not anymore right. now that you have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, I was going to ask you, where does the name Thea come from? Like, are you trying to wink at theology in a way? <gasps> Ding, 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 ding. Yes. No, really? No way. Yes. Yeah. Alex actually picked it out. That's really? not. Yes. Very nice. Is that literally where you got it from? Yes. Wow. <laughs> well, I like that. I was going to say I'm honored, but like, it's not like you named <laughs> after us Josh, or the show. But Josh is honored. That's kind of cool. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm. Well, okay. So speaking of theology, I... First of all, wanted to acknowledge the fact that we've had two regular episodes back, and because I'm the one who edits our show and yeah. does all our sound design and stuff, by the time I'm finished like trimming up an episode, I can usually see if we have a good balance of airtime amongst the three of us. So, first of all, I just want to apologize to you two and probably our listeners for like... Steven is very much getting caught in moments of, I like hearing the sound of my own voice, and I am very much hogging our airtime. It helps that you have a nice voice. Thank you. I'm flattered. I appreciate that. But I won't accept that as a deflection from 
I I want to hear your guys's voice more. And so along those lines, I have questions today about guilt. Oh. Oh man. Oof, man, what? Oh. Whoa. Okay. okay. So my first question that I'd like to start with is is guilt merely a psychological feeling that our species has evolved as we socialized or is it like an actual moral reality that is like divine in origin. Oh boy. Sometimes Steven really do be like, I'm not talking enough. You guys should talk more. I'm going to throw you this super hard question and it's about guilt. Yeah. Well, talk to me. Here's the thing is I'm guilty about talking so much. So I'm trying to, I know that that's why it's so funny. Yeah, I know. There's a, there's a lot of layers working here. Um, wow. What a, hmm. what a question. Guilt, guilt, guilt. I mean, like immediately my mind goes to like the psychology of guilt and like, I think you brought up a good point about like, there's definitely a social element to guilt almost mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. even at the root of that, like if you were trapped on a desert island and you did something quote unquote wrong, even with the lack of other persons, like, sure. do you still feel a sense of independent guilt? Yeah. Right. Somehow. Yeah. My personality oh. is prone to, yes, I feel the guilt alone on a desert island still. Yeah. Well, you- I think I'm coming to Josh, because you said something that immediately for me kind of clicked. And it was when you do something wrong, but you can feel guilty even if you don't do something wrong. Mm. Like Just because can- it's like socially imposed. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like sometimes it is a social thing. Like, do Mm -hmm. I feel guilty that I just declined my girlfriend's call because we're recording and I told her that we were going to be recording? Hello, Elise. I know you're listening to this right now. Hello. Or let's say say you are on a desert (laughs) island and you got stranded because you decided you were going to go boating instead of hanging out with your friend and now you're stranded. So you feel guilty because you didn't get to hang out with your friend. Like Hmm. there's no one else on the island to make you feel that way. So it's the, it's in hypothetical examples like that that makes me wonder, like, is guilt something that's actually, is it not related to socialization? And is that just ways psychologists have talked about it lately? Mm-hmm. Like, if, is, if, if guilt is still, pre- I mean, I guess we were just socialized to begin with, and that's why that feeling sticks with us. I think there's pretty much always a social element to it. Like, sure. Animals can feel guilt um mm-hmm. but plants as far as we can tell do not feel <laughs> guilt uh it remains to be seen if like non-domesticated animals do feel guilt mm-hmm. um so maybe guilt is somehow a human imposed emotion that can be imposed on other species but i'm also like thinking about like the difference between guilt and shame and how guilt is usually like seen as like a quote unquote direct response to realizing that you have done wrong versus like shame being considered more of like an unhealthy response and like Mm -hmm. dwelling on it long term Mm. which is like a really really simplified definition but i mean that's just kind of like the popular thought right well so then the question comes then did we as humans create guilt or was guilt something created by God, the divine, 
you know, higher being, whatever you want to say. I would argue that God did not intend for us to feel guilty. That's a like, big statement. That's a big it's statement. It's a really big statement. And someone could take it with a grain of salt and say, oh, well, what he really means is God didn't mean for us to feel shame. But I think that even I'm not a Jewish history expert and I'm not a biblical scholar, but I don't think you have to read the Bible from a lens of the point of the gospel and the point of the law and the point of Christianity and Judaism is to point out that Christianity it's done wrong and God is the only thing that can save us and we should feel wrong for our wrongdoing and like focus on that. I think that the, mm-hmm. I think it's really like if you don't come to the text with those presuppositions about like atonement and the nature of humanity, I think that it's really easy to read the text and come away with the conclusion that even despite wrongdoing, God loves humanity anyway and wants humans to love each other regardless of wrongdoing. Like there's not yeah. much about guilt in the text. There's a lot about like, like you've done wrong, like do wrong no more, mm. even in the law. Mm. Mm. Is guilt just the felt sense of for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Like guilt is just the feeling of that falling shortness? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then, okay. But if I agree with that, then that makes me sound a little hypocritical with like, (laughs) oh man. Yeah. Just a little. Because I think that we should admit when we've done wrong, Mm -hmm. like on whatever scale it is. So here's the thing that's tripping me up is that I, I love the idea that God never intended us to feel guilty or experience Mm -hmm. guilt. But I think guilt is probably the natural byproduct of when things go wrong, like uh, in a moral sense, like on the wrong side of morally good or right, you know? So like to me, the the feeling of guilt, and I guess we're, we're now speaking in the, the context of like guilt is the consequence of going against the divine objective moral law, Right. And, and I would still love to separate the conversation maybe a little later and talk about like how could guilt have evolved and just arisen from societies. But if the feeling of guilt, it feels like it's serving us somehow, but I'm not entirely sure what the end goal is. If it's not to convince us that there is a right way and that maybe maybe Jesus is the right way, you know? Well, I don't think you have to believe in a divineness or Christianity specifically to see the function of guilt in a social context. Like I think it's really easy to see that like being able to admit of wrongdoing and recognize your own wrongdoing, regardless of its morality or like its socialness. I think that being able to do that clearly functions to serve communities and society. Mm -hmm. Like we could have a whole nother conversation about like justice and like how to match wrongdoing with good doing and Hmm. etc but like i think that it's to me it's easy to see that guilt does have social function regardless of where it comes from yeah i think it's always going to be a part of us too like i'm reminded of there are moments where you know if i ask for forgiveness you know if i did something wrong or whatever and i feel guilty like even after i'm forgiven I could still carry some of that guilt with me. And I think it can be, while torturous at times, it can serve as a reminder of 
what you had done and now you're on the other side of it. So just remember, Mm. you know, like you don't you don't want to be in a place like that again. Like and it's and maybe that's where shame then unfortunately comes in because people then use that as a weapon to say, do you remember when, you know, you did this shame on you? Interesting. How would you make the distinguishing between guilt and shame? Like, I know I kind of put it in my own words just now, but I'd love to hear what you two would word it as, or if you see well, a difference. Emily just got me thinking in physical terms of of injury. So I'm thinking in like, you know, you sustain a, a major burn or cut to your skin, right? Like, I'm almost thinking the way she just talked about guilt being like a reminder of the past of like, this was a natural consequence of your action and you've learned from it and you know, you don't want to go back. So in that way, I think I'm, I'm kind of thinking of guilt as like properly developed scar tissue where it's like the wound is no longer open and I don't feel pain from it, but there's still Mm -hmm. a reminder, you know, on the surface of like, remember that thing that happened. Whereas maybe shame is like, that same wound gets infected and like festers, mm. you know, and continues to like uh, grow inhospitable bacteria and, you know, things get nasty. And so maybe shame yeah. is like allowing the wound to fester, whereas guilt is like that scar tissue. I like that imagery a lot. I can get behind that. Because I do think of shame as something different. It's almost like, yeah, you know, like I think of guilt as a feeling. But I also think of it as kind of like an event, whereas shame is just something you can sit in and wallow in. Yeah. Guilt feels more discreet, more packaged. And I do think we have to look at the relationship between shame and guilt. It is possible to feel guilty. Like it's possible to be guilty without feeling shame, Hmm. just like it's possible to feel shame when you're not guilty of something. Wow. That is so true. Oh, that's a good point. I like that. Wait, can you say that again? So it's possible to be guilty of something without feeling shame, but it's also possible Mm. to feel shame when you're not guilty. Hmm. Ooh. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe the, oh man. Maybe the, like the big disconnect in between guilt and shame is like when we feel shame when we're not. When we actually don't have anything to be shameful of. Right. Like, I think that th- that's some of the the biggest power behind people who are really outspoken against purity culture and the purity movements that happened in churches is that, like, we were made to feel shameful about things that we didn't really have good precedent to feel guilty about, that we weren't actually guilty of, of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, like, lots of different examples of that, certainly in Christian history. But, like, how would you... I don't know. Like, how do you teach someone to be conscious of their wrongdoing and shortcomings and need for growth without shaming them? Like, I've always kind of come from like a positive Mm. psychology angle of like, like, keep going. You can do better. Mm. Like, don't or don't do that again. Like, yeah, do it this way. Like, raise the raise the bar and be like, yeah, I know you can meet the additional challenge. Um, you, Josh, you're making me think of the work of Brene Brown and <sighs> I'm thinking about the way she talks about guilt is like, it's like framing something as 
I have sinned versus I am a sinner. It's like an identity question, mm-hmm. right? So like yeah. shame is a way that we adopt the things we're guilty for as an identity. Yeah. What do you think of that? I'm struggling because I'm thinking of scenarios where when we are guilty of something and we don't feel guilt or shame, basically you're like ignorant or that or just like in a state of denial. Like you do not see the wrong that you have caused or the wrong that has taken place. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, like, is shame always bad? Like, I think in moments where you are guilty and you don't feel shame, then that's bad. Like, I think and that that's where it's like a really fine line, because <laughs> when shame is used against someone who is not guilty, then, oh, man, this is a tough. Yeah, one, see, Steven. that's but it like all depends on how like how you're defining your morality. Like, yeah. Yeah. And and part of me wants part of me is very attracted to the black and white of like shame is the bad version of what guilt is here to teach us. You know, like guilt maybe doesn't mm. have to be assigned good or bad. I feel like mm-hmm. if it does become that infected wound, then it is shame and then it is bad because you're not, I don't know, addressing the problem. You know, it's like you're not treating the burn that you sustained, but yeah. you're also not taking your hand off the oven either. Here's a question. Do we need to feel guilty in order to be guilty? Mm. Like, I don't have to feel forgiven in order to be forgiven. Yeah, no, that's true. But also, like, that is very much how I think Christians through the ages have thought of, like, we are all guilty whether we feel that or not. And now it's my job to essentially do, like, evangelism well, to convince you of your guilt so that I can introduce you to the person who nailed that to the cross alongside him. Okay, but we also need to be careful because we could step into the territory of, I don't feel guilty. Okay, Jesus died for my sin. You know, I have a clean slate. So if I do anything wrong again, oh, I just have to repent and it's already taken care of. Yeah, I agree. It's not antinomianism. But what what was that word? Oh, I mean, that's 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 the fancy word for what Emily just described. It's like it's that feeling of um, it's like moral licensing, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, it's like, yeah. well, well, I think Paul even talks about it in one of his letters in the New Testament. Oh, like, yeah, we shouldn't sin more. That grace would abound even more. Exactly. Like, OK. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's what Emily is talking about. And that's from my understanding. That's what antinomianism is to my. Yeah, that that sounds right. So. I think there's that extreme. Obviously, the other extreme is, well, well, I don't feel guilty, so I'm not. But you may have also committed mm. murder, but not, don't feel guilty for it. Because, like, sociopaths and psychopaths don't feel guilt for what the rest of us do. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think that necessarily makes them guiltless. But then on the other side, so it's almost <sighs> like a dice now that we're entering. You could have this extreme sense of like guilt or shame or grief over something that you've already been forgiven for and you just dwell in that guilt. See, and I think the dwelling in it is what shame is. Maybe sociopaths don't feel shame by that definition. Oh. Like they can recognize that they've done something wrong by society's standards. 
and legal morality. Oh. I like, yes. I like that distinction. I guess, Stephen, your bigger question is like, where does our morality come from? I mean, right? kind of. Yeah, I guess. And should morality make us feel guilty when we break whatever morality there is? Yeah, or at least like, of course, the next question is, is there like an objective morality out there for which like, you know, our conscience pleads guilty for us, even if our minds don't want to plead guilty? Because like, that's how, how I've heard the question of your conscious framed or like your moral compass is that basically like, well, that's the Holy Spirit telling you you're sinning against the law of God. Even if you're not a Christian, you still feel like something you did was wrong. Right. And that's just like, I don't know, God drawing you to himself in a way. Well, what do you make of the argument about seemingly universal morality existing and that being an argument for God existing because humans seem to have a sense of morality? Yeah, right. What do you think about that argument? I, maybe I'm kind of convinced by that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. What about you, Emily? I Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as Stephen. Like, instead of arguing from God clearly exists, therefore his law is the moral objective, we're arguing the other way around, saying that the moral objective exists, therefore something must have given it? Is that what? Yeah. That's the framing? Mm-hmm. That kind of feels like the most compelling reason for someone to point to a felt sense of morality. I don't know. That feels better to me than say, saying, like, just taking the presupposition on that yeah. God exists, therefore God's morals must be right. Because, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably, I, I'm way more in the subjectivity camp than I used to be. And, like... <laughs> It's 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 going to be a lot easier for me to argue from the felt sense of right and wrong that I have internally that I live and experience and then extrapolate that onto a universe that I observe and say, like, a God must be there because I have this felt sense, even though I was never, like, explicitly taught something about morals. Mm-hmm. So wait, hold on. Wait, to sum up, you think it's more reasonable <laughs> to, like, to notice... And observe a seemingly objective morality and then conclude that God must exist rather than to like come with the presupposition that God exists and therefore God must have some sort of morality for us. Yeah, maybe. And I mean, like I can I can hear the argument coming basically saying like, well, your your felt sense of morality is just coming from society. So maybe society is God, you know, because if I'm going to argue in that order then anything can be God as long as it's the thing that hands down the morals. Does that track? Did that make sense? I think so. <laughs> this is all... I'm trying, well, okay, so I'm trying to think fast. of it from like a legal perspective. Like I've seen some people try to make the argument of like about certain issues in society and like just falling back on the argument that like, well, it's legal, so mm. we get to do it. But like, I don't think that that's a legitimate... I think that that's a false argument like just because something is like like Paul says, like everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Like just because something's legal doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, or the best thing to do, or the most correct way to go about it. It just means like this is the way society is functioning, right? And in that way, I think it's 
a not complete perspective to assume that society just builds its own morality. I think that those two things have to be separated. I mean, certainly, like, there's a social element to morality, like wronging fellow human beings, but Mm -hmm. I think that society only comes to those because of our, like, intuitive sense of right and wrong. What do you make of... Okay, here's a thought. What do you make of the whole, uh, like, parable of the garden and the knowledge of good and evil? Like, what do you... How do you make sense of that now? That whole <laughs> storyline. Like, what is that? What is that supposed to be? Like, I feel like I always heard that Genesis narrative explained as like, well, before that, like, we just didn't know morality. And yet we acted perfectly. And, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, we, but we acted perfectly. We did nothing wrong. That, but that doesn't make any sense if you didn't know right and wrong. Like, right. you would not. That I mean, it almost feels like Paul's argument for like it was the law that taught me what it was to covet so before then i hadn't committed the sin of coveting anything because i didn't know what it was so it took the law to tell me well that was a sigh emily (laughs) what do you think of paul's argumentation style here one word fart oh okay the pastor disagrees with the apostle paul that's fine that's in okay. this instance, yes, like, I'm sorry, <laughs> like, this might be an extreme example, and I might even, I may completely be missing the mark here, but just roll with me for a second. Sure. Maybe it's the sangria kicking in. I don't know. Um, just, okay, so let's take the example of rape. Okay, I know it's an extreme example, but rape was always a thing. Mm-hmm. And just because laws were made against rape. That doesn't mean that now rape exists because the law. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. And I've always thought that Paul's argument. That's the same argument I was making. Yeah. I've always thought that Paul's argument is strange because he goes to like coveting, which is kind of a, it's like, it's kind of. Why was that? Why was that the one? It's kind of vanilla compared to murder. He's like, murder wasn't wrong until God's law told me. So, well, so keep in mind, Kate, we go back to the Genesis story. It's. Yeah. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not right and wrong. Oh. Okay. Are they not synonymous? I've always, I literally have always thought of them as synonymous. I don't think they are. Something can be wrong, but not evil. Oh, okay. I think I see what you're going for. You're like trying to draw a comparison about like extremes. Okay. I think that's important though. We're going to take a quick break to say a few thank yous. Then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com slash Ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at Ravelpod on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color. And thank you to the Highline Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick word from our sister show, Author's Intent. Hello, my name is Dixie Lee, and I am the host of Author's Intent. I go through books and movies and talk about the similarities and differences between them. 
I just finished up my beginning series where I went through the first book in the Hunger Games, Narnia, and Harry Potter series. If you're hearing this, it means you are just in time to jump into a new series called Disney Classics. We are starting with The Beauty and the Beast. Join me on Fridays to talk about the author's intent. And now, back to the conversation. Actually, that you bring up a good point with Paul mentioning coveting, because, like, you're right, he could have just gone murder. Like, why didn't he go murder? Like, is he trying to make a point about, kind of along with your point, Emily, like, is he trying to make a point about something more mentally based that's not as physical and tangible that is easier for people to, like, dismiss because it doesn't have as quickly tangible ramifications and it's mostly internal you mean like what jesus did to say like you've committed murder if you've angered or yeah is that that's not how it's phrased but yeah if you've <laughs> if you've had yeah anger, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. like you look with lust and you've committed adultery and broke the seventh commandment yeah maybe i've i've heard pretty compelling sermons used around that 10th commandment for covetousness to be like Commandment 10 gets us back to the top and back to commandment one, because one through four are like our relationship with God. Right. And then five through 10 are our relationship with others. But what Mm -hmm. covetousness reveals is that we have a God before the one true God. Right. So like we've lost some connection to the source of the knowledge of good and evil, I guess. So like the way I make sense of the, the parable, I like the way you frame that too, because you said parable and I was instantly thinking Jesus. And then you were like, and then you were talking about <laughs> Genesis. Nice. Well done. Um, nice. So the way I think of the parable of the garden is that like the serpent is convincing Adam and Eve to attempt to know good and evil apart from the source. So like you can be like God without being in communion with God, right? Is basically the temptation. Yeah, I've mm. heard it framed that way too, but like they ate from the tree and it worked. Right? <laughs> that's that's very true. <laughs> like all of a sudden they like it says actually this is a great <laughs> connection. I'm glad I made this. Pat on my back. Um well like it then says that they were ashamed. Like they knew exactly what they did. Because they had the knowledge of good and evil now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So if it worked, then is God just a withholding which like kind of oh. comes back to my Sorry, point was... about like if uh, if God didn't like if that was what was actually accomplished by the knowledge of good and evil, yeah. Then like according to the very first story in the Bible, God originally intended for humans to not be focused on that and to not be like self-absorbed with mm. trying to do the right thing and the wrong thing and mm. whether or not they messed up and like feeling oh. guilty about it. So it's like, it's like Adam and Eve just tried to grow up too fast. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Like, I don't know. This kind of reminds me of our episode on uh, original design. I don't remember what we named that episode. Um, But like, I think a lot of people like to harken back to like, well, this is the way it was in the garden. So we should get back to this. Make Christianity great again. But like, um, Adam and Eve didn't feel shame until they quote unquote fell. Like, I think that's, what's interesting about mm-hmm. the whole Genesis story is like the, I, I think it's really easy for people to talk about. Like it's our like disconnect and our like disobedience of God that 
makes us fall. And like we all fall short because we disobeyed and we did what was wrong. But in the Genesis story, there's like almost equal connection and symbolism tied to shame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that being a significant catalyst for like life changing events. Mm. And I'm not really sure it's making a clear argument. Like I, I don't think it's saying there's no morality or there's no healthy guilt, but mm-hmm. like it's there in the text and, and like not very many people talk about it from what I hear. Mm. That's a good point. So what do we what do we do with guilt? You know, like what how should we approach guilt in our future interactions with other people? Because I feel like we can either use guilt for good or use guilt for evil. Does that make sense? Use guilt for good in the sense of like use it for productive change or like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I guess that's a thing you could do with guilt, I suppose. Although I think people would disagree with that. Like, I think, and this kind of befuddles me that like some people would believe that A, a man 2,000 years ago died for your sins and forgave you for everything you've ever done, but really it was all that you ever could do because you didn't do it yet. But then B, whenever you do do something wrong, some people still like hold that belief with the belief that, well, you need to like pay for what you did. Right. Like you need to like make right and account for what you did how do we hold those two hand in hand yeah it's that it's that feeling of the atonement where it's like jesus got us back to zero but now it's our job to make sure we don't go negative again because that's how that's i mean like as a kid i think that's probably that's probably one of my clearest memories of like of course i became a one you know because like i remember being like six or seven and it was literally every time I, uh, you know, would sin in my mind, like disobey mm. my parents was the biggest one on my mind right then. Like, I am so, <laughs> I don't know if at, at a younger age I was just higher in neuroticism and agreeableness or something, but like every time I would disobey my parents, I would like specifically after reconciling with them or like accepting my, I got grounded or whatever, I would go to my room and I would like, I would pray for like 20 minutes because I thought that I needed to be forgiven by Jesus again. Right. I've totally mm. been there too. I was that kid that I would pack a bag and say I was going to run away. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. No, that wasn't. <laughs> so, like, that's obviously the unproductive way to go about things. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I, I think guilt is, like, the healthy way to utilize guilt is kind of use it as a catalyst toward what Christians call repentance. And just, like... Mm-hmm. How can you learn from this? How can you change your ways? Because you experienced the negative consequence of whatever you did, whether that be like a social harm or physical harm or any of the other harms, right? Like I -hmm. recognize that I did something wrong and how can I thoughtfully like repent of that and change my ways to not repeat that in the future? Because I definitely found that displeasurable as well as the people who were victim of my sin, as it were. You know, how do you think that the concepts of guilt and shame change from the individual level to the collective group level? That is Mm. a fascinating question. I feel like this is pointing at like part of our culture's 
insistence that like systemic problems don't exist because social guilt doesn't exist. Only individual guilt exists. Mm. Mm. I, so, I mean, like, I guess to show my cards, I definitely believe that social guilt exists. I think that's more what Jesus cared about and was preaching about anyway, was how were the people of God conducting themselves, not any one individual inside mm. the group, you know? Yeah. Like those were, those were his biggest critiques of the people of God was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were off the path. When it came to the individual, Jesus would seemingly, you know, he was, he was drinking with people and hanging out with prostitutes. Like when it came to the individual, it was just, it seemed to be just complete unconditional love, mm-hmm. like healing anyone who asked for it. But when it came to social problems, when it came to the Pharisees and the money changers in the, uh, in the temple, like that required turning over some furniture and eventually getting himself killed for it because it enraged him so much. What do you think of that, Emily? I, I think you're onto something. And I think one of the things that popped in my head, and it was something that Josh actually had said a little while back. Do you think that we have, the, okay, so we have this idea, this thought of, you know, Jesus is showing us like healing and love and restoration. And, you know, we are forgiven of our sins now and forever future whatever and yet we still on the other side have this idea of if you do something wrong you need to pay and like you need to feel guilty or shame whatever however you want to define it do you think that that turns people away from jesus like from christianity because we're given this message of one thing and yet our actions and society says another yeah i think so i think that like those like seemingly cognitive dissonant attitudes are rampant. And to be honest, I think it's like things like that, that either are like the final straw for people leaving the church or like set people off on like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Like we should not have those things in conflict. Emily, was your question whether it's like, are are we turning people off of Christianity by insisting on individual guilt? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Probably. I mean, no, <laughs> no one likes to be told that they're wrong, right? And that they're guilty of anything if they don't meet you in the same, like, worldview of morality. For me to tell anyone that they're wrong according to my Bible when they don't believe in my Bible is like, all right, cool. Thanks for telling me. Yeah, but also, what do you do with Christians who, like, are coming to different moralities from the same tradition and the same Bible? Yeah, I mean... That's, I don't think people handle that very well, like no matter like where you're coming from, whether it's like one group making a thing into a moral issue that really the Bible is not arguing is a moral issue mm, or other mm-hmm. people who are, I don't I'm not sure the right way to say this, like going like the far, far extreme and like not holding people accountable for their actions. Right. Like I, this is going to sound like a really impossible opinion, but I think it's possible <laughs> to like hold people accountable. And like not put people in power who are abusive and narcissistic and harmful to other people while also not inducing shame to the perpetrators in a way that is like healing to primarily the victims, but also allows for growth and healing to people who have done wrong. 
Right. Like in my mind, that's like the dream behind rehabilitation. And I would argue that that is like a central part of what Jesus is talking about. And I, I get confused when like people go to like either extreme mm-hmm. and they're, they're either like arguing for such like an extreme sense of morality where like almost nearly everything is wrong or like, <laughs> like seemingly like non-moral issues that are like really more like socially related or rights related. They make into moral issues and mm-hmm. try to induce a bunch of shame onto people. But I don't know. It, uh, it's so complicated. I think like it is complicated. like obviously so many people are upset at the church whether it's a specific one or the historical church at large for like being in an abusive structure and system that perpetuates violence and abuse, which I think is a very valid opinion to have because like that is like rampant throughout different traditions. Like it, it's not even just the Catholic church. Like it's, it's everywhere and people yeah. rightly should be upset about that. But at the same time, I, I think Jesus is like calling for something bigger than morality yeah and i think and i'm not really sure how to people i'm not sure how we to just say struggle that. with it yeah we're just struggling with it maybe it's something we are meant to struggle with and that's it's that struggle that tugs on our hearts that you would hope pushes us towards being more like christ like being more like jesus being more compassionate and caring for the poor and loving our neighbor hmm. Yeah. In, Hot take. In, oh, sorry, Stephen, well, but you said that you wanted to hear my voice more. I do. Hot take. <laughs> I'm here for it. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> I'm sorry. I totally just interrupted you just for fun. But um, really quick before we go back to you, I'm not going to feel guilty. No worries. Um, <laughs> hot take. I think that I just forgot what my hot take was going to be. Where did it go? It Shame escaped on you. into the void. Shame on you. It, it's gone into Janet's void. Take it. Bring it. Bring it back. Uh, bring it back. Reel it in. Reel it in. Uh, Cast your nets on the other side of the boat. You'll get all the fish. <laughs> Hold on. Let me throw it over. I'll throw it over. Um, What were we talking about? <laughs> uh, I hope you feel guilty now. <laughs> I feel a little guilty. I just sidetracked myself. Emily, yeah. Emily just said something very poignant about like, yeah, like, of course, we're going to struggle with morality. Like. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, you got it. Nice. A hot take. If someone is going to use a moral argument, you have to make an argument for that thing. You can't just end with, well, it's just wrong. Mm. Oh, you, you, yeah. you can't just like slap a label of morality and induce shame and guilt. And not back um, it up. And like create a structure of wrongdoing without backing it up and making an argument for like why it's wrong, who it's harming. And also, I don't think, I don't buy the argument of well it just harms god it hurts god when we do these things Ooh, i don't preach buy it. that at all like do you believe it. god is an omniscient all-powerful being or you believe that we can affect god which also some christians do believe that you can affect god process but that is party. An entirely yeah that is a process party that is an entirely different view of god i'll admit that does believe that god is relational and is affected by what we do somehow but if you don't believe that, then you cannot fall back on the argument of like, well, it just hurts God mm-hmm. yeah. because we disobeyed. Mm-hmm. It grieves the Holy Spirit for yeah. us to fight right now. Yeah. 
Hmm. So it's like one or the other. Like you have to, I think people have to decide like which one they're going to fall into. And if you're going to make an argument for a morality, make a f-ing argument. Like, whoa, scorching hot. Don't, don't just like, don't just say something's wrong without like building it up. Also, if you're going to be a Christian and say something is quote unquote biblically wrong, you need to like figure. You need to show your work yeah, as this in math class. Biblical is one of my least favorite adjectives because like, what on earth are you talking about? Where in the Bible do you want to argue that from? Because the Bible contains multitudes, my man. Fruit Mm -hmm. is biblical. It says in Song of Songs something about (laughs) grapes. Yeah. We should be eating grapes. It's in the Bible. Eat the grapes. Munch, munch those grapes. Stop. Yikers. All right. Wow. I'm dying over here. Josh, I love the hot take, my friend. Thank you. Do you get you what I'm saying, though, about Absolutely. like the. In all seriousness, yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, what Emily. Emily inspired the thought that, like, man, sometimes I say things that I'm like, oh my God, this sounds like super corny Christianese. But, like, in, in many ways, you know, if we speak of shame as, like, taking on, adopting the identity of the sin we commit, right? And like, it's now part of your identity that you are like an adulterer or a murderer or whatever, rather Mm -hmm. than like, I committed murder and now I repent from that. Like, it really feels like after this conversation, I'm, I'm getting the sense that the gospel is the opposite of shame being the identity marker. Whereas like Christ now becomes the identity that inspires us to the opposite of shame. Yes. Right? Where ah. shame spirals us down into the pits of literal hell. Or not literal hell. I mean, if you're a universalist like me, it's hell on earth. It's not like a mm-hmm. third dimension of the universe where there's fire and demons and sulfur and whatever. But like, so shame takes us to that place, whereas Christ is the liberator that comes from the grave carrying Adam and Eve by the hand, saying, like, you don't have to be there anymore. Your identity can be the complete opposite of shame. Mm-hmm. Now everything mm-hmm. is permissible, but not as and not everything is beneficial. And it's up to you using the discernment of my spirit to say, this is a beneficial time for me to do the, the everything permissible things. Yeah, that's like the liberator Christ, right? That yeah. gives us the identity of like living into a guiltless life, you know, because we recognize that maybe God didn't want us to feel that anyway. That's kind of what I said a while ago too, is like, I, maybe Jesus was here to just tell us like, you were always good. And Mm -hmm. I just, Mm -hmm. you you apparently needed me to tell you that. Right. Yeah. He just needed a reminder. And it took mankind crucifying him. uh, Like for, for that message to sink in with even the apostles, right. Of like, yeah, he has these messages and Peter recognizes him as the Christ as revealed by the Holy Spirit like weeks or months or years before the crucifixion happens, but it really takes the resurrection for them to say like, oh, so he could even accept a crucifixion, come back and still forgive? Maybe the whole universe is like this. I mean, you also remind me of, um, I don't remember what year this was. I feel a little guilty about it. You reminded me of the Amish schoolhouse that had an active shooter situation and several people died. And the Amish community in that area after the fact was so forgiving towards 
like the shooter's family and like builds a relationship with them and uh. like refuse to hold anything against them. And I, it befuddles me when people like make arguments about morality and like you should feel guilty for such and such and such, whether it's individual or societal. And I'm not saying we shouldn't hold abusers accountable. That's not what I'm saying. But it befuddles me when people who call themselves Christians or Jesus followers or whatever, like, don't make a point to go beyond that. Like, because, like, obviously murder is wrong. Like, so obviously. That's the real life example of my favorite rant about Les Mis, right? With the candlesticks and the priest on the mountain. Right. That's the real life example of you murdered a community member and we are immediately going to turn around and offer like the most radical version of forgiveness you could imagine. Right. And like they, they did not need an argument of like, well, no, that was wrong. They knew it was wrong. They knew it was absolutely wrong. Like, so what if it was wrong? Like, what are you going to do about it? How are you Mm going to love? Oh, oh. And like that's what I uh, don't understand about people who like get trapped in the moral argument discussions and debates. Like, uh, if something's wrong, like, sure, define it as wrong, but like, what are you going to do about it? Mm. How are you going to treat that person in front of you? Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. the takeaway. And that's and that's I guess bringing it all the way back to my foundational discussion or question before we close is like the question of whether guilt is just a psychological feeling that we have that it took. Jesus of Nazareth to say like you don't need this anymore like let me show you a new way right the good news or like some sense of true moral guilt you know and that and now we have to have conversations about hell and damnation and and all these things it kind of just feels like we're in a place where the guilt was natural for us to evolve with you know because that's what happens in societies and that happens that's what happens as we try and identify a moral ground that we can all stand on in a culture. And then it takes someone radical to say like, good, you made it this far. Let me show you the rest of the story. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. There you go. I feel very, I, I loved this discussion. Do you two have any closing thoughts before we get out of here? I just think that this is a topic that all people, especially Christians, need to address like almost on the daily like don't let guilt or shame weigh you down to where you put yourself into this pit of despair but don't also neglect to acknowledge guilt and shame like you can use them as a means for good like to push you forward and to be a catalyst of change like find the balance and know that we have an example of living into a good life and that guilt can be helpful. We just need to be careful of Mm. how it's being used. Mm. Yeah. What about you, Josh? No, I don't think I have anything else I'm thinking about with guilt and shame. Although uh, if anyone's out there listening and you are not currently supporting us on Patreon, you should feel extremely guilty about that. Wow. For sure. Like, if you if you claim that you have eaten from the knowledge of good and evil and you do not support <laughs> us on Patreon, absolute guilt trip. Guilty And, of charged. course, that is patreon.com slash Ravelpod. Um, Josh, what's absolutely insane is that I was going to make the exact same joke, except for, <laughs> please, we would love it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts with a couple sentences about what you like about the show and 
Uh, oh yeah, please. Do. Five stars if it's worth worth it to you. Um, if you mm-hmm. have a one star review to leave, you can just keep that one to yourself. We'll take all the five stars though. Yeah, my word, my friends. I I feel absolved of all my guilt. I thank you for this. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Anytime, yeah. anytime. Emily, may we have a blessing on our way out? Oh yeah. Whether or not you're wrestling with guilt and shame or you're completely content with guilt and shame, this is a topic worth discussing. This is a topic worth raveling out and we can do so in community and we can do so embracing the good that comes with it. Dixie Lee Henning, and this is Author's Intent. You know how you have friends, and sometimes those friends are like, hey, have you seen this movie? And then you're like, well, I I think the book's better. And then you guys get into an argument, and then you stop being friends because of their totally wrong opinions. Well, I liked that feeling so much that I decided to make a podcast about it. So I put in the work, I read the books, I watch the movies, and I tell you the differences between the two, and... You know, you can still be friends with that with that friend who thinks that the Hobbit movies are good. They're not. They're not good. But you can stay friends. I'm essentially a mediator in the friend space, you know? I'm here so that you can stay friends with those people, despite their horrible opinions about books and movies. So, you're welcome. Media Network, artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.